Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lavelle at St. Joseph's University. I'm recording two days after the U.S. Supreme Court heard a critical case on concealed carry permits in New York State. And today's guest and book could hardly be more relevant. I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Carlson to discuss her new book, Policing and the Second Amendment, Guns, Law Enforcement, and the Politics of Race, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. When Americans talk about guns, they often use terms like gun rights or gun control. They also tend to separate gun politics and the politics of the police. Jennifer Carlson identifies the inaccuracies of both. She provides two alternative narratives of American gun talk, gun militarism and gun populism. And she believes that both clarify the stakes in today's gun debates. Based on her extensive research using local and national newspapers, interviews with police chiefs, and observations made at gun licensing boards, she insists these two discourses reveal how race shapes how both gun politics unfold and how gun policies are created to differentiate between legitimate violence and criminal violence. Coercive social control is organized by racialized understandings of gun violence. Carlson demonstrates the roles of the NRA, police chiefs, and gun administrators in distinguishing the boundaries of legitimate violence for both private and public gun owners. For her, linking the politics of guns with the politics of the police clarifies our political and policy debates, as well as the complex terrain negotiated each day between police and private citizens in our social lives. Dr. Jennifer Carlson is an associate professor of sociology, also of government and public policy at the University of Arizona. Her remarkable early book, Citizen Protectors, The Everyday Politics of Guns in an Age of Decline from Oxford 2015, has shaped the study of how guns impact American society in multiple fields. Her public-facing scholarship includes commentary in the Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post, and I'm just delighted to welcome Jennifer Carlson to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Before we talk about the specifics of the argument in policing the Second Amendment, would you start us off by just sharing how you came to study the impact of guns in American society? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because uh, one of my my favorite gun scholars, Kristen Goss, um, has has often remarked on this observation that perhaps there's no area of such acute public debate and public significance that has been so understudied in certain social sciences, um, certainly the case in sociology where I find my, my disciplinary home. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, so as far as, um, you know, my own interest in guns and studying guns um, from a sociological perspective, I grew up in a very conservative family. And I think that in some ways, or in many ways, um, my father as sort of this conservative figure uh, in my life growing up has 
shaped uh, shaped me in many ways. Um, ways that maybe he's very <laughs> he's very happy with, and ways that maybe he were, were rather unanticipated for him and his politics. Um, but one of the things that it did do was really um, make me take or force me to take sort of a sociological lens on conservatives and and how conservative conservatives think and what conservative ideology actually means to the people who embrace it. Um, and that's actually something when we look at sociology, sociologists tend to study the left, they tend to study liberals. And of course, you know, that's that's partly reflective of their own biographies and their own um, experiences. So I was always interested in conservative politics, but I didn't grow up with guns. So I didn't grow up in a gun-owning family. Um, I, I became kind of curious about it, particularly um, in the um, sort of very, very early Obama years, uh, just, you know, when Obama got elected for the first time and suddenly all these stories about, you know, guns and ammo flying off the shelf. And, you know, this is, there's this big panic buy. And, you know, as, as a young person who really, um, you know, wasn't totally politically conscious, I will say in the early nineties, when, when, you know, you have this, this president who's a Democrat, Clinton, who's passing all these, you know, gun, gun, you know, well, the two major gun regulations at the federal level, I didn't really have a sense of that, you know, firsthand as, you know, a teenager then. Um, and so seeing this kind of unfold with Obama felt really new. And so I thought, okay, there must be lots of sociologists thinking about this. This is such a big thing. I mean, this is not some, you know, niche aspect of American culture and American society. And it was actually pretty shocking to try and find literature that didn't engage guns as a public health problem, didn't engage guns as a um, problem of, of gun crime. Uh, but actually looked at sort of how people understand guns as as objects of safety and security in their everyday lives. And so, it, you know, conveniently, I was trying to figure out a dissertation topic for my PhD in sociology. And I thought, this is it. Like, this is this is clearly the thing that I, I was meant to be studying um, in terms of my, my own personal background, my interests, and sort of this moment. So that's how I started thinking about guns. And I have to say, it is very sad to me that there is not more, um, and, and I should say, like, there's been a lot of, of surge and in interest among sociologists, uh, Angela Stroud, David Yamini, um, Thatcher Combs. Um, I, I could, I'm just naming a few, but, you know, there's there's actually uh, Trent Steadley, Harrell Shapira. I don't want to forget anyone, so I apologize. Um, but but it's actually, um, there's actually much more interest in this area. But, um, but yeah, it is it is uh, sort of surprising that, that it took this long to kind of get sociologists on board. So yeah, I find that um, guns are an incredibly useful tool, uh, I'll say a sociological tool, to intervene into um, debates, discussions, analyses surrounding a whole host of issues that are sort of at the fault lines of American society. So whether that's um, socioeconomic decline, neoliberalization, the end of manufacturing, gender, um, those are issues that I really um, kind of dug into with with citizen protectors or the politics of race, which is what really the focus is on with policing the Second Amendment. I think guns are just a really excellent window into um, yeah, into the fault lines of American society. The situation in political science is very similar to the situation in sociology. We have had very little We've had some great scholarship, but we haven't had quite as much. And when I talk to legal scholars, they say that as well. And and part of it may have to do with the discomfort that uh, scholars have with with guns themselves. Um, 
you mentioned race, and this book is very focused on racial politics and racial lenses. You use the death of Philandro Castile, a, a, a school cafeteria supervisor, a lawfully armed American with a concealed pistol license, and you know, as the entry point into your interrogation of guns in American society, you, you note how he himself. <clears throat> understood that his license to carry a firearm was granted on terms that were really shaped by his racial identity as a Black American. You say that he knows that in order to survive being stopped by the police, he has to comply with, with unstated rules because he knows he can be misrecognized as a violent threat. But then you also turn to the police officer who kills Castile and, and emphasize how he has been taught that police who hesitate on the job could lose their lives, that he'd recently been through a bulletproof warrior training, uh, which affected his decision to pull the trigger, even though Castile had announced the presence of a gun and his identity as a lawful carrier. And, and, and you know, you note how seeing Castile as a threat rather than an citizen protector, to quote your earlier book, you know, it is shaped by assumptions of race, particularly this idea that Black men are not just suspect criminals, but dangerous gun wielders. And you puzzle over what you call a lethal double standard. So just to start us off, expand a little bit on this double standard and why this particular death reveals gun politics as the politics of the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's um, yeah, that's a great question, and I think it really gets at a lot of what we're seeing with regard to how gun violence is debated, discussed, adjudicated. Um, we're seeing this most certainly in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, which is is currently being uh, tried, and um, and yeah, I think it's 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 a really core question for understanding how we we draw this dividing line between criminal and legitimate violence. So I actually want to start by just kind of defining what I mean by that and explaining why that's a really central aspect of the book. So one of the things that I think happens a lot in debates about guns is we talk about gun violence. We talk about gun crime. And we're already sort of setting up the debate to be about a particular kind of violence. So violence that is bad, violence that is criminal. Um, And we tend to like that that's that's and that's actually kind of makes sense in a way because on in terms of both sides of the gun debate that's what they both want to talk about right once we get into this question of legitimate violence so the violence that as a society or as um dominant like members or groups within society has deemed to be lawful um done with justice or what have you, um, suddenly that becomes very uncomfortable. There's a lot of debate around how we draw those lines. Um, Those lines reveal very uncomfortable things to ourselves, Um, not just that we are very comfortable in some cases with violence. Um, I think we want to believe in, you know, what we so many of us believe is a democratic society that we we aren't a society like that's the whole point of democracy is to sur- circumvent violence but yet we see with um you know obviously uh, ongoing support for police as an institution that is seen as 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 necessary as the the rejection of um this this um yeah this recent uh ballot initiative in um 
Minnesota to actually end the police department and turn it into a public safety department, um, that was that did not pass, which really suggests that people are invested in the police. And so that raises the question then of um, of what kind of legitimate violence we're okay with. And and again, we don't like to have that question because it reminds us that we're okay with violence. It also um, at least some kinds of violence, and it also reminds us or forces us to confront that we have to draw lines. And oftentimes in the in American society, we are drawing those lines on the basis of race. So the line between what counts as criminal and what counts as, as legitimate is supposed to be a legal one that is colorblind, race neutral. Um, it doesn't depend on who's wielding the violence. It depends on sort of what what the violence actually is. But as we can see, um, that's, that's just not the case. Um, we see, for example, in the case of Philando Castile, here is someone who is lawfully armed. He's not actually doing anything. Um, you know, obviously the, the narrative from, um, you know, from the police side was that he was possibly reaching for a gun. He communicates that this is not what he's doing. Um, but yet the mere, not even the mere presence of a gun. So we know with like, for example, the weapons bias that, um, you know, if there's a, sort of a, a vague object, if it's associated with a person of color, uh, it's more likely to be seen as a gun. If it's, a, if it's associated with a white person, it is less likely to be seen as a gun. Um, and there's a whole lot of other really interesting aspects with regard to the weapons bias. And so what we see with with Philando Castile is there's not even an object there. He is just, there's just the the notion that a gun is present um, near an African-American man who is stopped by the police because he looks, he he fits the description, which Philando Castile throughout his life had many, many experiences of fitting the description and experiencing police stops as a result. So he's not new to this sort of um, ritual of racial degradation. Um, and so, yeah, that what we see is that this police officer sees him, ca cannot in that moment see him as anything but a threat. Um, and then that obviously escalates to um, the, the murder of, of Philando Castile. And so, um, so, so I think what that shows is sort of, um, first of all, um, obviously that race shapes how, um, you know, that, that the license in itself is a, a license to carry a gun. And I think this goes back to sort of um, themes that are discussed in this uh, recent U.S. Supreme Court case that was just, um, you know, the, the oral arguments were just heard a couple days ago, um, you know, in terms of what a gun license actually gives you and allows you to do, that license is, um, is, is administered on racial terms, not because there's an explicit racial, uh, you know, language related to, you know, written in the law with respect to the license, but because that license depends on people like law enforcement, people recognizing that license as a, a legitimate, um, a legitimate, uh, permission for you to carry a gun. And so, you know, when we talk, have these kind of, you know, broad debates about, you know, gun laws and what have you, we have to put the police in those debates because the police are the ones who are actually executing and enacting these laws. Um, so that's, that's kind of, um, you know, kind of a, a response to this question of, of double standards with regard to race and the, the capacity, not just to get the license, but to actually carry it and to, 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 you know, to, to engage gun politics um, as an everyday practice, which is something I talk a lot about in Citizen Protectors. Um, but then the other thing I think that, um, and I, I just want to add this in terms of thinking about Philando Castile, um, you know, this was a case that actually really for a moment, scrambled sort of the sides of the gun debate. You had, you know, writers in the New York Times saying, hey, I thought this was a right for everybody. So, you know, obviously we may not be totally comfortable with, with how this, you know, with, with concealed carrier, what have you, but like, 
this is very um, hypocritical with regard to race. You also had writers, you know, in the National Review saying like, look, there, there was something gravely wrong that happened here. You had NRA members basically asking the NRA, telling me, demanding that the NRA actually say something about the case. The NRA doesn't say anything except basically the biggest thing it can po- the, the organization can possibly say. Um, and that week is also the week when um, police officers were killed in Dallas um, at, at a protest, at a Black Lives Matter protest. And um, that's where we hear the NRA really coming out clear in terms of their defense of uh, police officers. And so that, again, also alerts us to there's something going on beyond, um, you know, the race and, and guns. That's part of the piece, but we can't understand that piece without also putting the police into the mix as well. Um, and so, so yeah, so I think Philando, the Philando Castile case um, really opens up these questions and illuminates obviously why we need to talk about race with respect to guns, um, but also why we need to talk about police as well. So before we go deeper into the argument of the book. Let's just talk a little bit about methods and data, because you have three different types of actors that you think shape the relationship between the politics of guns and the politics of police. You also have a diverse country with 50 states that define rules for carrying guns differently. So what type of evidence did you look at and how did you pick the three states, Arizona, Michigan, and California, to get a result that would give you um, a more general idea of how the United States thinks about guns. Yeah. Yeah. So for this book, what I really wanted to do, as I've already mentioned, is really insert police into the debate, Um, not just as, you know, people who have an opinion about guns, but who are also actively involved in constructing the gun debate, uh, resisting the terms of it, reproducing the terms of it, as well as actually enacting gun law at the street level. And this is this is something that I just it, it's so um, rarely discussed and yet so consequential in terms of the guns, the gun laws that we we pass at the legislative level. So for that reason, obviously, I wanted to get um, sort of a historical viewpoint of how did we get to the point where um, you actually have police. Uh, and, and when I say police, I'm going to talk about the specific, uh, you know, areas of, of the police community that I talked to and research. Obviously, policing is a very broad category in, in the U.S. You have private police, you have sheriffs, you have uh, municipal law enforcement, um, but you can see very much um, very high profile police, uh, police spokespeople, I'll say, on both sides of the gun debate arguing for that side. And so, you know, it's not a, it's not a given that police would naturally be allied to one side or the other, uh, even though I think both sides sort of imagine like, well, police, they, they, they understand the importance of defense against crime, so they're going to be pro-gun rights, or you know, police are the ones who are interfacing with the public. They don't want an armed public, so they're obviously going to be in favor of gun control. And so what I found was that um, to get to the point where we are, which you know, according to the the Pew data that I cite in the book, police, uh, and this is this is like law enforcement, uh, public law enforcement. Uh, there's there's a great uh, actual like survey of public law enforcement. So this we don't usually get this kind of these kind of data, but just as I was writing the book, that this data dropped. Um, that actually showed that police in the majority support gun rights over gun control, and they do so at a pace that appears to be that, that appears to far outpace the general public. Uh, so so the first question was sort of you know how did we get to this point? And so I rely on basically reconstructing a history of 
gun politics from the perspective by centering the police. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking and reading about, um, you know, NRA initiatives. Uh, I read, you know, I look at local news reports and that sort of thing. So that's, um, that's one piece of the puzzle, sort of this, this archival work. Um, but then the, the real meat of the book looks at the contemporary context. As you, as you mentioned, I focus on three states, Arizona, California, and Michigan. And you're totally right. Um, you know, this may change actually by the end of, or by, you know, mid-year 2022 in terms of the differences across states, uh, depending on how the Supreme Court decides uh, this recent case. But for now, um, there's actually a pretty big divergence with regard to the kinds of gun regimes that uh, people in the U.S. may be living under. So the way I cut it up is that um, I see three dominant regimes, uh, gun lax, gun permission, permissive, and gun restrictive. So Arizona, where I live, is uh, one of the sort of quintessential gun lax states. Uh, basically, we have the, uh, the, the regulatory and bureaucratic apparatus that's sort of set as a minimum by the federal government, but not, not much beyond that. And we have a lot of laws that actually um, uh, loosen gun, gun restrictions uh, beyond that, or, or rather allow you to do things with guns that you may not be able to do in other states. So we actually have um, a brandishing law that is very different in Arizona versus other states. Uh, we have stand your ground. Um, we have, uh, you can get a permit to carry a gun, but you can also carry permitless. If you can legally own it, you can legally carry it. Um, so basically, you can pretty much, um, assuming you, again, meet the federal guidelines and the, the federal bar, um, you could pretty much do whatever you want with a gun in Arizona um, without much of a bureaucratic uh, apparatus to jump through. Now, Michigan is my gun permissive state, and I really mean permissive, not just as sort of a, a throwaway like you, you're able to do a lot, um, but also that you need permission. So um, in most of the things that are legal in Arizona are also legal in Michigan, but you need to go through some kind of bureaucratic apparatus to, um, you know, to, to be able to do them. So for example, there is gun registration in Michigan. Um, there is a concealed pistol licensing apparatus in Michigan. Um, it's not yet permitless. Um, and so, so it's a very, I think most people would say to see it as, as a, well, at one time as a pro-gun state, although I think as, as permitless regimes become more dominant. Um, people may have different thoughts about Michigan. And then California, of course, is the gun restrictive state. And so restrictive, um, both in terms of there is many of the things that you you can do in Arizona and Michigan you cannot do. There's no legal way to do them in um, in California. There are um, bans on ammo uh, or so, sorry bans on on magazine capacity on certain kinds of guns. Uh, there is um, and this has gone back and forth in terms of the courts, but there's a real push to actually have um, background checks even for ammunition. And um, and of course there's a, a huge bureaucratic apparatus to enforce all of this. Um, California actually has its own background check system in addition to the federal background check system. They also have a list called the Armed uh, and Prohibited Persons List that basically is a list of people who uh, at one point registered a gun with the state of California and um, did something to make them in ineligible to own a gun. And so there's these lists that exist of people who could have guns. It's not clear because that's a whole nother can of worms in terms of uh, enforcing that, enforcing gun seizures and that sort of thing. Um, and, and so that's another aspect that's very, very different about California. So these states, um, but when I say different, it's distinctive in, in terms of these other regimes. I think that we can actually look at California Arizona and Michigan as sort of three states that tell us a lot about more generally the, the terrain of, of gun regimes in the U.S. So what I did is I went to those three states. I um, talked to police chiefs across those three states. I wanted to know, know um, 
is the, you know, how they understand guns, is that different across these three states? Uh, does it depend on how, you know, not just um, what they think about guns abstractly, but the laws that they're actually enforcing with regard to, to gun policy? Um, and so, yeah, so that was, um, so that's piece number two. And so the last piece of the, the book is uh, looking at how gun laws are actually enforced. And what is tricky about this is that a lot of the decisions that would be really helpful to be able to observe with respect to um, kind of nailing out, finding out, tracing out bias, um, we can't actually observe them because gun licensing decisions, the, the decision of a licensing official uh, with respect to whether or not to give someone, for example, a concealed pistol license, that's not made in a public forum. Those records cannot be FOIA'd. And so it becomes a real conundrum because you have these laws that on the face of it don't appear to be racially biased. Um, they don't have racially explicit language that would lead us to think that they necessarily are going to result in racial biases. Of course, though, we know that um, there's lots of ways in which, which uh, racial bias arises, particularly when we think about criminalization and the criminalization of, of blackness, that you don't need explicit racial language to, to, have, um, to, to craft a law that ends up having racially biased um, outcomes. So this becomes a really big problem because as we hear a lot in debates about um, gun carry legislation, particularly shall issue legislation, that it's non-discretionary, that there's no bias, that this is, you know, race neutral and all of these things. Um, but we actually really don't know because we can't actually see how people are making decisions and if there's, if there actually are disparate outcomes. So I was very lucky. I actually caught the tail end of um, an institution in Michigan that lasted for uh, roughly a hundred years, the, the gun board. And um, these are public forums in Michigan where people who have their gun licenses to carry, so could sealed pistol licenses, they, um, if they have their licenses uh, suspended, revoked, um, or denied, they can come to this gun board and basically explain why, you know, either how to, how to address the situation or how to, how to overturn the decision. And so what this did for me was actually allow me to see how licensing officials, which I should mention, tend to be from the police. Um, so almost all of the administrators at these gun boards had either were either there on behalf of the police as representatives of the police, uh, for example, the Michigan State Police, or they were they had some kind of law enforcement affiliation or background. So so it really provided me with a space to really clearly focus in on how gun licensing decisions were made. And um, and what I found was that uh, it's not the case that um, race just doesn't enter the room when you write laws that don't explicitly mention race, um, but in fact enters the room through, we could say, the back door with, um, you know, emphasis on things like police contact, um, uh, danger to self and others, and and that sort of thing. So, so that's how I build my case in terms of the book um, with those three uh, pockets of, of data. So that extensive research uh, reveals two discourses that motivate the book. And, and you write that, you know, you aim to, and I'm just going to quote the book here, trace different impulses, gun militarism and gun populism with regard to the organization of legitimate violence, public law enforcement and gun access in the United States. And, and as the remarkable title implies, you believe that policing the Second Amendment is not just about regulating guns, but insisting on a particular understanding of what constitutes legitimate violence and how it should be distributed across society. And, and you're arguing that these two discourses are implicitly and explicitly embedded 
and racial ideas surrounding law and order. So let's start with just really brief descriptions of the two discourses, because I also want to get us through the chapters because they really take the methods that you're using and the type of data, and you can see how each chapter plays out all of this um, rich material that you've you've um, collected. So a lot of times Americans talk about gun control, gun safety, gun rights, but you don't think those are the right lenses. Um, so would you just briefly explain the discourse that is gun militarism that you call gun militarism and gun populism before we go through the the, the, the the argument that comes out in the chapters? Yeah, thank you for that question. Gun militarism and gun populism are really sort of the two, the two big ideas from the book and the two terms that I really try and invest in in the book and develop because I think that they are more illuminating with regard to giving us coordinates of uh, the debate as it unfolds, the gun debate as it unfolds in, in the U.S., so when we think about gun militarism and gun populism, the reason that I wanted to come up with these terms is to name sort of these imaginaries that people, and it's actually not, um, they don't map onto the gun rights versus gun control side. They actually crisscross uh, across those two sides because they're not about sort of the place of guns just abstractly in society and where, you know, what the place of guns should be, but they're the place of guns sort of refracted through the, um, the, the lens of race and racial politics in the U.S. So gun militarism, I think is a very, um, I think is a, the easier term to kind of wrap our heads around because it's very much embedded in sort of this war on crime mentality of, um, you know, police are warriors, they're soldiers on the front line of violence. Um, they need to be given every tool possible to fight this war. And it's a war that's not just fought against anyone. It's a war fought against, um, you know, imagined to be fought against uh, sort of these archetypes of racialized criminality, the gangbanger, the drug dealer, the thug, um, these categories that are very much associated with um, urban communities of color, uh, particularly African-American boys of, and men who are imagined as, um, you know, as, as these kind of hyper-violent criminals that, um, that police need to basically be able to pull out all the stops in order to, um, you know, in, in order to address uh, their, vi their violence. Um, and so gun militarism really it captures this idea that, um, you know, when we're thinking about guns and gun, gun regulations, it's a war, it's a it's a military endeavor, and it is um, fought along these kind of stark racial lines. And so the key kind of objective is to empower the police, give them bigger guns, um, and get uh, the the enemy disarmed. Um, and so you know when you look at um, the the argument in the book regarding sort of the the reconstruction of the debate regarding um, you know the the politics of guns through the lens of police, you see very clearly that this is how police get pulled into support for the assault weapons ban, for example. Uh, Daryl Gates, who was uh, chief of LAPD, I mean, his, his, uh, you just read his words and it's it's so clear that his support of banning assault weapons uh, was was really about disarming um, and you can read his words I'm not going to repeat them but disarming um, racialized uh, what he imagined as you know the, the the urban criminals of of la and beyond so so that's gun militarism and I actually see that across my three states and that actually makes sense because the sort of ideology that it's embedded in this war on crime ideology is is pretty rampant across Across the U.S., it's pretty consistent across the U.S. and most certainly Michigan, California, and Arizona are three states that have heavily invested in sort of the war on crime. 
Um, gun populism, though, is a little different. And so gun populism forces us to shift away from sort of the over-policing of, of urban communities and the under-policing or what has been called the under-policing of um, suburban and rural communities. And so what I try to argue in the book is that this over-policing, under-policing um, paradox that's often discussed is very useful for understanding the experience of racially marginalized communities vis-a-vis the police. But it has a, a um, problematic uh, sort of um, analytical consequence when we try and use it to understand, um, for example, predominantly white communities, because it suggests that there's just like no policing there, that they just, there's just, you know, it's just this kind of idealized, um, you know, white picket fence sort of context. And that's not actually what's going on. There's a distinctive racial logic of policing that's happening in those communities. And what gun populism does is sort of get at this, this very different relationship between um, police and, and the community that they police. So how this kind of got activated um, when I talked to gun gun sorry when I talked to the police chiefs about um, guns and gun violence was with respect to this sort of specter of active shootings this this um, brand of gun violence which you know obviously we can look at the data and and there's a lot to be said about whether the sort of imaginary of active shootings actually maps on to what the actual data show about active shootings, but there's most certainly this sense of, you know, active shootings are utterly unpredictable. They, they emerge, you know, it's, it's, you know, people who snapped, people who, you know, are not of the community, but somehow um, really shake the community to its core. Um, It's, um, and, and yeah, like I heard like, you know, police, very much kind of seeing active shooting as, as as violence that's happening in places where violence shouldn't happen. Now, of course, that is an absolutely classed and racialized claim um, that is embedded in this idea of, of suburban and rural America as sort of these I- idyllic uh, spaces with regard to violence. And so what police sort of think through or what my interviews show about how police think through uh, through gun violence in, in um, you know, suburban and rural communities is is not so much like the the impulse is not so much to disarm um, you know disarm the community and and aggressively police um, under the sort of warrior mentality but actually be um, have, have a very different emotional valence so one of the things that I found really fascinating with police as they talked about um, active shootings was this um, sort of emotional um, key that they they tapped into about feeling embarrassed, feeling shame, feeling devastated if they were uh, somehow at, um, you know, found themselves in the midst of an unpredictable active shooting that that happened. And for example, they didn't have their guns. They were off duty and they weren't carrying their guns. Um, they would say things like, you know, I, I don't care if, you know, the guy next to me, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, whether he's an off-duty cop, he's an everyday civilian, if he's armed and I he needs to be backup, he's going to be backup. Like, that's what we need to stop this threat. Um, And so that is a very, I mean, obviously that's very different than sort of how um, violent, the the emotionality of violence in um, urban communities of color is sort of translated for police. Um, And it very much puts everyday civilians not necessarily on the level of police. So police are not saying like, oh, I want, you know, I just want everybody to be armed and then we'll just have this like, you know, posse, you know, this like, right. you know, true citizens militia or something, um, you know, they, they weren't, not everybody was, you know, at that level, but they definitely did not see citizens, uh, everyday citizens um, as uh, as a threat. Um, they saw them as actually a, a possible um, advantage to public safety. And, um, and 
to bring this back to race, what I found was when they talked about sort of the good citizen with a gun, it was often um, with code words like the farmer, the teacher, the, you know, these kind of middle class, white, often um, masculine, although not always, um, sort of labels for understanding like who the good guy with a gun is. Okay. So, so the armed citizen can be a collaborator in, in the, the work that the police are trying to, to do. And that's part of what does, defines the, your, your gun populism narrative. So the first chapter looks at the relationship between the NRA and U.S. public law enforcement. And we usually think of the NRA as a lobbying organization representing the interests of individual gun owners and the firearms industry. How is it that the NRA shaped our expectations about what the police do um, and how does race map onto those expectations? And the book is so detailed on this and it's, I, I know it's going to be very, very hard to, uh, uh, to be brief, but let, in, in the, the, the sort of short, short version of it so that we can get the entire argument presented for everybody. So like, this was so surprising to me. So um, explain a little bit about what happens with the NRA. Yeah. So what happens with the NRA, I think in order to sort of unpack the the NRA and its development, not just with police, but in general over the, the past century, uh, I really find uh, Matthew, Matthew Lacombe's new book, Firepower, really uh, illuminating. It just came out, so I don't talk about it in the book. Um, but he talks about the shift from the, the NRA from a quasi-government organization to a partisan organization. And with that sort of um, quasi-government organization, um, con- within that context, uh, the NRA in its early years is, is really focused on um, supporting the U.S. military, uh, supporting training supporting um, and training not just for, you know, hunting, but, um, you know, military, sports shooting, competitions, and that sort of thing. Now, the NRA still totally does all that stuff. And I think that's something that that is often overlooked in the gun debate, just how much uh, the training aspect of the NRA um, matters and and how much they do in terms of that. Um, But that's actually where we see the the first sort of intervention with regard to uh, the NRA and the police, which is that um, as early as 1916, you actually have calls from within the NRA saying, you know, police need to be trained. So, you know, you have, um, you know, the sense that violence is rising. So this is actually um, not the war on crime, the war on alcohol, as um, some historians have called it. Um, and, and so you have within this context, the NRA actually saying police need to be able to shoot, shoot well. Uh, they need to be able, the criminals need to fear them and not just think, oh, wow, the police pulled out their gun and they're probably going to miss. Um and this is also, I mean, what's what's important, I think, to understand about this is this is a time where, like, police and this this relationship between police identity and guns is not really solidified. So, like today, it's impo- I mean, it's very difficult to imagine police without guns, right? In the U.S. context, like that is just so core to the policing role as as it unfolds in the U.S. Um, but like at this point in history, in the nineteen, in the early nineteen hundreds, police didn't even have um, standard issued firearms. Like if they had firearms, in most jurisdictions, they were just they were their firearms or firearms that they ch- they weren't standard issue. Like um, you know, like like we have with regard to not just revolvers, not just semi automatics, but you know, AR style fi- firearms and what have you uh, with police today. So so what you have is the NRA sort of intervening with regard to training, um, and you see this kind of unfold in different ways. Um, obviously, the FBI becomes much 
much more involved in police training and, and to some extent displaces a little bit of what um, of what the NRA is doing. Um, that's not to say, of course, that the NRA ever um, totally rescinded and got out of the, the police training, um, the, the tra- police training stuff. Um, they still do uh, train police. But what you have in the 1960s um, is actually uh, the unfolding, obviously, the birth of the war on crime. And that sort of changes the dynamic, um, not just in terms of, you know, police uh wanting firepower, feeling that they need firepower to deal with this newfound, you know, the newfound threat of rising gun violence in many different forms. Um, But you also have um, police actually starting to understand themselves as everybody starts to understand themselves at this moment as, um, as, players in the gun debate. So like this idea of the gun debate didn't really exist prior to the 1960s in the way that it exists today. And so it's not until the 1970s when the NRA really takes this like sort of hard partisan shift um, and becomes really lays the groundwork for becoming the lobbying group that we know today. But all through that, the NRA is still sort of going back and forth with the police. And so there's moments where we can see, you know, um, the, the, the NRA really um, trying to court the police. Uh, we can also see moments where police are really explicitly, um, really explicitly rejects uh, the NRA and sort of the NRA's um, agenda with regard to guns. Um, and then we see that, so we, we can kind of trace that out. And so that's what the book, the, this chapter of the book does is really try and trace that out. And what it finds is that you can't actually trace that out without also understanding how crime is racialized and the threat of crime is racialized and the idea that we have to do something about guns or sorry about crime and about gun crime whether that means pulling guns off the street restricting um, banning certain guns or you know bloating our criminal justice system whatever it is um, those conversations are happening um, through through the lens of race through um, racializing and racist uh, designations of communities, people um, as, um, you know, particularly, uh, you know, like the language of the super predator, for example, and, and you know, all the types of things that, that Daryl Gates, again, uh, you can read about in the book, uh, sort of uses to, to galvanize this idea that assault weapons need to be banned. Um, so, yeah, so so it's a pretty, it was, it's a pretty interesting history, and it's one that um, I think both sides of the gun debate actually, like as they're constituted today, I think um, it, it really sheds a light um, on sort of the, the the political preconditions of passing the kinds of policies that that we um, you know that that we may embrace on either side of the debate. And I think that the the as sort of like the um, the foundation for thinking through police populism and police militarism. What I think this chapter also does is say that it's not that you know the NRA is the police populism side and the you know the gun control side is the police militarism or anything like that, but it actually shows how these discourses uh, crisscross across those. It's also a great reminder about the police force as an institution. We tend to think of it from the 21st century as highly uniform in all ways, the uniform, the the uniform guns, the training. But the chapter really, really underlines uh, how that is is a fairly recent phenomenon and that the NRA plays a role in the development of that. You have the most remarkable material from your extensive interviews with the police chiefs from the three representative states. Very briefly, what is it that these chiefs see as their role and, and how are they using those two discourses to describe their roles? 
Yeah, I, I think that's super interesting. So I'll start with the question of discourses. And I'm glad you asked that because I think one of the readings of this book that is some that is is not my intention. Um, and so I want to just kind of push back on that is this idea that there's, again, like, police who are who are oriented to one uh, sort of way of thinking about guns versus the other. And and that's not the case. It's not that all the urban chiefs talked about gun pop, gun militarism and all the suburban and rural chiefs talked about um, uh, gun populism. Uh, it was rather that they would strategically draw on these imaginaries to make sense of gun violence and try and make sense of, of what to do about gun violence. So, you know, these are very much... Um, Police are very much concerned. I mean, it's funny because I'm about to say this, but I think about um, when I say it, I think about a, a chief that kind of parroted this and was like, yeah, that's what we all say. Um, but I do think that chiefs are motivated by public safety. Um, now it's public safety refracted through training, experiences on the job. Um, you know, uh, I mean, we, we all know about, you know, police cynicism and all this. Um, but I think that they are, they define what they're, they, they define what they are, they, um, are trying to advocate for with regard to guns with respect to protecting innocent victims from from violence, criminal violence. Um, but of course, the question then is what is criminal violence and what is what constitutes innocence um, and, and who can be innocent? Um, and so that's something that I, I, I found um, that was really fascinating with my chiefs um, is, is how innocence. Um, so, you know, we've talked about like the good guy with the gun versus the bad guy with the gun. There's also the question of who is an innocent victim of gun violence. And one of the things that came out was, um, was that it, it became very clear that certain, certain groups of people just couldn't be innocent. Innocent. Um, they couldn't be, and, and by extension, then looping back to the good guy versus the bad guy with the gun, they couldn't legitimately use guns in self-defense. And so they kind of had that, that right rescinded. And so very much, um, and, and I talk about, I get in kind of the weeds with regard to um, the felony murder doctrine and sort of how there's this sort of one drop rule of, of criminal involvement uh, with respect to um, urban urban crime that really um, makes it very difficult for uh, what, based on my interviews for people within the commu police community to see, um, to see certain groups within um, urban communities of color as, as innocent victims rather than, um, you know, rather than people who live a criminal lifestyle and that's why they got exposed to gun violence, um, which is obviously completely different than how they understand um, the victims of active shootings who are, you know, they're, they're school children, they're innocent, they're, um, they're vulnerable. Um, they deserve 100% of what the police can give them in terms of, um, you know, there, there's no moral question about their deservingness with regard to, uh, with regard to their victimization. Um, so, so yeah, I think, um, I, I, <laughs> no, I think that's great. No, no, and 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 on, honestly, you've covered so much of what happens in the chapters of the book, and that that's actually a challenge because this this book moves between broad theoretical claims, which you have built from this extensive data, and also a really convincing summary of that data. I mean, this is a great book to read. It's beautifully written. It's very succinct. It's 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 remarkable. So it's, it's a it, I found it fabulous. Um, and I think it's accessible for those people listening. I think it's accessible to assign to undergraduates, to graduate students. It's certainly essential for anybody doing any research on Second Amendment, on Stand Your Ground. 
uh, and I can't speak to the disciplines in sociology who would use it, but I can see it also being a case study for many other ways that sociologists are trying to figure out social patterns. Your your conclusion insists that separating the politics of police and the politics of gun is is toxic. And I'm wondering, given the connections that you've made, what is possible in terms of reform in the United States as you see it? I mean, there's the question of what's possible and what's possible. (laughs) I think that, um, you know, this is a very... um, We keep using the term unprecedented, um, and I don't want to use that term again, Um, but we are actually at a very unique moment, I think, with regard to gun policy. Um, Obviously, we there's a Supreme Court case that was the oral arguments of which were just heard um, this week that involves the question of um, of of permitting regimes across the U.S. And, you know, it's, it's unclear, obviously, how, how the court will decide um, narrowly, broadly, um, but it could have a very um, massive effect on states' abilities to, um, to, to regulate concealed carry in public. And um, one of the things that I found um, that I, I find really interesting when we have these debates, um, and, and I'm going to loop back to comments that I said at the, the top of the hour, which is that, um, first of all, we don't, we often don't talk about um, race in a very sophisticated way. Um, race is often, um, it's often used as a, as a way to disparage the other side. Um, it's the, the other side is racist. And I've said my piece. And so that's all I'm going to engage. Um, there's not introspection with regard to how race shapes both sides of the gun debate. And, um, and I really mean that, like, I, I really think that that in itself would be um, a really massive elevation of the gun debate if, if both sides would not just focus on race as a way to win an argument, but a way to understand um, the terrain of gun violence and gun trauma um, that, that we have become very much normalized and accepting of in this country. And we, um, I, I, um, yeah, there's different categories of we. And so I do want to acknowledge that as well. Um, and then I think the other piece of that is, um, that we, we pass gun laws with the notion that, well, they're passed. And so, you know, there's this, and I, am going to be very glib right now, but you know, oh, well, there's these studies that say this is bad or this is good, or this is going to have that impact. And so let's pass it. And then, yay, we're done. We did our, you know, we did our great thing. Well, okay. So first of all, passing laws is, is a conundrum in itself, but once you pass those laws, you don't know um, if you don't actually understand how they're being implicated and implemented and enacted um, within the communities that are impacted by them, you actually don't have a good sense of what the actual impact of those laws are going to be. Now, obviously, one of the great examples of this is the assault weapons ban, which many have argued actually just created backlash um, and emboldened and empowered the NRA throughout the 1990s, um, and in some ways very much had the opposite effect uh, that it was intended to have in terms of the very long game of um, gun restrictions. Um, Another example of that would be, and I'm going to get a little bit in the weeds, but I think it's so fascinating that I think it's worth to, to unpack. Um, so, so one of the questions I often get asked are, why were police uh, willing to talk to me? And I think that you know, there's there's different answers for different police chiefs for sure with that. But California in particular, I think one of the reasons that chiefs were willing to talk to me and interested in talking to me was that they were really um, aggrieved by the rollback of the war on crime. Um, they saw many of the state of California's laws um, regarding guns as as hypocritical in the face of the rollback of the war on crime. Um, and this is, you know, this is 
ongoing. And one of the things that I, I found talking to them was um, the way that um, the, their experience of the, the California assault weapons ban actually politicized them inadvertently, which that ban, um, the way it works is that police have a, um, they are able to own banned guns under that ban, under the California state ban. Um, but once they retire, those bans, they can, those guns they can no longer own. And so basically what you're doing is giving them something attached to their status as police, taking it away. In some cases, um, really bringing up some big issues in terms of like, who's going to pay for that gun now? Because the departments will take it back, but they don't necessarily have money to pay. So it opens this whole can of worms that might sound really small and, and silly if you're like, you know, writing laws and you're a, you're, you're a lobbyist, you're a policymaker. But actually, for the people who experiencing that, who experience that, that's one more thing to push them into seeing these laws as poorly thought out, hypocritical. You know, because they're saying, "Well, what's the difference between, you know, today when I'm, you know, in the police, and tomorrow when I'm retired, and now suddenly I can't have this gun?" Um, and so there's these little crevices that actually end up um, pulling people to one side of the debate or the other that you don't even, you can't even really grasp without understanding how um, how gun laws actually implemented and enacted on the ground and police are the crucial sort of actors to make sense of that. Um, so I think that in terms of, um, you know, I, I don't end the book with a big policy prescription. Um, I think it's actually somewhat problematic that sometimes gun books feel that they have to do that when their data are not actually showing them that that's not what their data are showing. Their, you know, it'd be odd to say like, and we should have universal background checks. That's, that's for other scholars to look at. What my scholarship looks at is how do we elevate this debate so that when we're debating whatever we're debating, we're not just using guns to talk about something that we're too uncomfortable to talk about directly. Now, and as you've noted a couple of times, we're talking two days after the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in this challenge to New York's concealed carry license procedure. And as I was listening to it, and I had just about finished your book, I hadn't completely finished your book while I was listening to the oral arguments. For me, the book was really, really helpful because the two narratives were swirling around the oral arguments. You have justices who are assuming that an armed citizen is an assistant to the police, and they they are speaking in this narrative of populism, uh, not using the word citizen protectors, but basically implying all of it. Uh, they are talking about the spaces that the police can't occupy and what should happen and whether individuals should take over the role of the police in those moments. I, I thought that the words legitimate violence weren't used, but that was exactly what many of the justices were talking about. So I actually think that uh, you could use that, the, the oral arguments as an excellent explanation for, for what it is that you're clarifying in this book. I know that you've got a team of research assistants right now working on uh, an NSF-funded project that is trying to un ravel the impact um, of gun violence on gun violence survivors. I, I'm wondering as we close whether you would share, you know, what else are you working on? What can we look forward to in the not so distant future? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I have a couple of projects on on deck. Uh, the project that I'm in the process of, of, of wrapping up in the sort of end stages is actually a project on um, gun sellers during uh, 2020. So obviously 2020 was um, a very... Uh, 
seems to be watershed year uh, in terms of gun sales, a gun violence. Uh, and so basically this book is looking at how uh, gun sellers in the midst of sort of navigating and fielding all these new gun, gun, um, gun buyers, as well as just like the general sort of uncertainties of 2020 along multiple dimensions, um, really how they reimagine themselves as, um, or imagine themselves as political actors and um, reimagine democracy. So trying to get at sort of this question that we've all been um, thinking about with respect to um, democratic instability, democratic decline in the U.S., and using gun sellers as sort of a window into um, the conservative politics of that as that's unfolded. So that's been really, um, yeah, a lot to a lot to think through. And then, yeah, I'm also um, interviewing gun violence survivors uh, to to try and understand um, how. Where we where we succeed as a society and supporting them, but oftentimes, obviously, where we fail, and I think that is um, both, uh, you know, in terms of the the social services and and sort of the frontline work with regard to surviving gun violence, but also in terms of our political conversations about gun violence. Um, so so yeah, so that's the that's the stuff on deck. Well, we'll look forward to them coming out and uh, you coming back to New Books and Political Science. Uh, before we go, we are pushing people to try to buy their books from independent bookstores, uh, either using bookshop.org or just walking into their favorite brick and mortar. So I thought I'd ask you if you have a favorite brick and mortar that you'd like to shout out in your area. And we'll, we'll, we'll end with that. I can also cut that question. I can also cut that question. Yes, I do have a favorite bookstore that's local and it's Antigone's Books uh, in Tucson, Arizona. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking to Jennifer Carlson about her new book, Policing and the Second Amendment, Guns, Law Enforcement and the Politics of Race from Princeton University Press in 2021. Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for engaging my work. Much appreciated.